Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello and welcome to this new edition of Medical Humanities podcast series. Uh, This is Khalid Ali, film and media correspondent at Medical Humanities online blogs. It is my great pleasure to welcome today Noura Kivorkian, documentary filmmaker, who I first met back in 2015 at the Dubai International Film Festival when Noura was screening her beautiful documentary film, 23 Kilometers. Without further ado, over to you, Nora. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us how documentary filmmaking became your calling? Thank you. Thank you, Khalid. Uh, I'm Nora Kvorkian. Very happy to speak to you today from Toronto in Canada. Uh, I grew up in Lebanon and uh, have Armenian heritage. And I came to Canada in my late teens to study And at the time, even though I really liked film and art, I thought it would be the right thing to do and sensible thing to do uh, was to study finance. So I studied finance and I always did. And I always took cinema courses, art courses, and I did a minor in Middle East studies. So eventually, after working in finance for several years, I knew that my heart was in filmmaking, storytelling. And so I quit my lucrative job, packed my bags, and I went to Syria, the country where my mother was born, and I made my first documentary film. So that was 20 years ago. And that's what I've been doing in the past 20 years, making documentaries and films that are about uh, human rights, genocide, Mm -hmm. war, about important uh, topics that affect us and mostly women and women's issues. So this is the last film that I'm that I'm going to talk to you today. Batata is really a, a very large topic humanitarian story. Indeed. So that film is for me. It, uh, this is Batata, the Arabic word for potatoes. This is your most recent documentary film. Tell us more about this beautiful story that spans. 10 years at least, of the characters' lives and your life as well. So tell us about those characters, Maria and Musa, the inception of the story, and take it through, take it through the batata. In 2008, I took my uh, son, two-year-old son, and I went to visit my family in Lebanon. My mom's friend, Musa, came to visit, and he invited me to go to his potato farm to just look around and take pictures because he knows I like to do that. So I rode with Musa, who is a Lebanese Armenian Christian landowner. And uh, we went with his really famous truck, the red truck, yeah. which uh, if you get to see the film, you recognize as a character. Yeah, and When we went to the potato fields to visit the camp to drink coffee from far, I saw this absolutely beautiful woman in red dress walking in the fields. And it an image that stayed with me. And I need to give you a background as to why that was the inspiration for me. Mm-hmm. 
growing up in Lebanon uh, with a, to a Lebanese father and a Syrian mother. My mom grew up in Syria and my dad in Lebanon. So all my life, I felt this tension between these two Arab countries that are neighboring. They share a, a border. And the Lebanese and the Syrians don't get along. They don't really like each other. And it, it is some kind of a cultural historic issue that they've had going back to the Ottoman Empire, the French mandate, uh, land divisions, Lebanese civil war. Without going into all that, there is this distinct dislike between the people. Mm -hmm. And because I grew up in Lebanon with that kind of family dynamic, my mom coming from Syria, all the relatives, my grandmother actually being Muslim Syrian, I always wanted as a storyteller to dive into this topic and talk about the relationship between these two countries. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to make it a non-political film. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find a subject that would, you know, talk about these issues, but in a beautiful story way. So when I saw Maria in the field that day, I realized this is the story that I've been looking for for so long. Here is a beautiful charismatic Muslim Syrian migrant worker, potato farmer, working- uh, who, who is Maria. That's who is Maria. Maria. Yeah. Maria. And she's working for a Christian Lebanese landowner. So it was the perfect setting to, to start this story in the beautiful Baca fields in Lebanon, green, lush, and mm. discuss this dynamic between these these two cultures, these two Arab countries within these amazing characters. So the following year in 2009, with a, just a, an infant, a new baby, I took my entire family and we went to Lebanon to start filming Batata. And at the same time, I was started to film 23 Kilometers, which mm -hmm. is a hybrid documentary drama that you mentioned um, yep. about uh, Parkinson's disease that screened in Dubai. So both films started together at the time. Yeah. And the plan was that in one and a half to two years, I was going to follow the story of the potato uh, migrant workers, they come, mm -hmm. they work, we talk about it, they go back to Syria and every year, and the following year they come back. And mm -hmm. I thought in year and a half, the story will complete and we will have a really nice documentary. Yeah. Halfway through filming all that in 2011, the Syrian revolution started and the film took a completely different tangent. So that was the beginning of this uh story which carried on for many years thereafter. So tell us more about how you bonded with these two characters. One is Musa, who is the uh, Armenian Christian landowner in the potato fields, and Maria, the Syrian Muslim migrant uh, worker. So how you followed, what inspired you and, and motivated you to go back year on, year after year to follow their story. I was filming the life of the potato farmers, the Muslim Syrians who came every year to Lebanon, Maria and her father, Abu Jamil and Jamil, all their relatives who came every year in around February. They planted the potatoes for Musa, who's the Lebanese Christian landowner. And then after the harvest, they would pack up and go to Syria. So I filmed this already up until March of 2011. And when the Syrian revolution started, I thought this is an interesting twist in the story. 
I would like to follow up and film a little bit more, maybe six months more to see where the story would go. As filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, we're always interested in twists and turns in our story. But at the time, it never occurred to me that this was going to be a large humanitarian crisis. It never occurred to me that this is going to be a civil war where millions of people are going to be affected. So I continued to film. And when in 2012, the Syrian revolution at that time had already escalated to civil war, there were uh, uh, chemical weapons being used on uh, 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 kids, children. Life was changing. And all of a sudden, these migrant workers weren't able to return back to Syria to continue their lives. So they were forced to stay in the potato fields. Maria, her family, they pitched their tents and they waited for the war to end. But what happened is year after year, Maria's relatives, cousins, uncles, their children, in fact, their entire village in around the outskirts of Raqqa in Syria, slowly crossed the border to Lebanon and they came to the refugee camp. So the beautiful potato fields slowly turned to refugee camps. And I was there from before all this started. And I had already got so much connection to Maria, to uh, Abu Jamil, to all the children that I cared for them. And I thought, well, I'm sure this is going to last another six months. Let me follow up and continue filming to see what will happen. And slowly, slowly, it took for on and on and on. And next thing you know, I had spent 10 years documenting this crisis that was happening. People running away from their home, from death, losing their you know, life, family, every devastation and sadness, violence, trauma. And they were all coming to Lebanon. And I was continuing to film and follow the lives of so many different characters. And so... It wasn't something that I was prepared to do. It I didn't go into this documentary saying, oh, okay, I'm booking 12 years of my life to make the film Batata. It didn't work like that. It was two years, one and a half to two years to make a, a beautiful film about potato farming and its politics between Lebanese and Syrian people. And next thing you know, it took a life of its own that lasted 10 years to film where I actually lived with them in the refugee camp, two years to edit, and the entire year last year to now, taking it around the world to festivals and screenings. What a story that is, uh, Nora. Uh, for me, Batata, while it's a documentary film, but it's also a docudrama with the story at its center, the story about Musa and Maria and Maria's extended family. So, and the plight of the Syrian refugees and their crisis. So while it's at its core, a very human and a human story reflecting the humanitarian crisis of Syrian refugees in Lebanon, but it also portrays the wider themes that connect with the international audience around refugees around the world. So tell us a bit about the, the wider implications of the wider story that affects refugees around the world? Batata is, you know, um, a really 
different documentary. Not only that it's unprecedented that it follows its characters for 10 long years, but it because it captures a, a, a piece of life, a reality, history, social study of what happens when people's lives are disturbed, uh, war happens, violence happens, trauma happens, and what happens to people. And this is be Batata is beyond the news coverage of this is what happened in the war. This many people are crossing the border to this country. A bomb fell on Syria. News and sound bites. It is it is really a human story. This is. It puts the face and story behind all the refugees that we hear in the news and media coverage. That's why it's very touching story. And it captures a decade in the lives of regular people that look like me and you and everyone else. These are people who have homes, they have wedding pictures, they have blankets from their grandmother. Like imagine someone telling us, right now you got five minutes, pack up, you leave, bombs are falling. This is how these people left everything behind, displaced to a new country, and they try to be resilient and strong and continue their life day after day. And, you know, I want to give the audience an and a picture that Batata is absolutely beautiful in its visuals. It's very intimate. The camera goes inside the the tents, the little cloth tents that are freezing. You get to see how people live, how they wash their dishes, where they sleep, how they keep themselves warm. It captures the reality. And, and this is what audiences usually don't get to see. They also get to celebrate life. There's weddings, there's joyful events, there's humor, there's lovely things. So it is not just a sad story. It is really a story of this large community of people. Maria being the center, a woman, unmarried Muslim woman who's very brave and takes care of everyone. Musa, who takes care of all the people. There's uh, Maria's niece, who's a young woman married with two children, her life. Uh, there's uh, Maria's parents and brothers, other people in the camp. So it's kind of like an ensemble piece of people's lives. Absolutely. And and I, as a viewer, I over the course of two hours, the, the duration of the film, I felt that I really connected with these uh, people, with these characters. I've walked, you know, the walk of life with them, including being witness to some of their traumatic experiences, such as the young woman's severe depression and the impact that had on her husband and young children and the wider family. I would like here to uh, have your view on the lack of health care, uh, which uh, comes up repeatedly uh, in the plight of these uh, uh, physical and psychological trauma that they have been subjected to. So the viewer gets a vivid scene of how it must feel to be trapped and in despair in that camp. While there are the joyful moments that, uh, you know, with their resilience and their appetite for life, that was very obvious and, 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 and felt. But there was still really a sense of the abandonment by the healthcare uh, institutions of what's going inside those camps. So tell us a bit about, you know, using one or other examples of some real 
uh, you know, mental health issues that are faced not only by uh, the young woman and her depressive episodes, but the young children there as well who have no access to education and healthcare. Refugee camps are known for all of us. I think as audiences, when we hear the word refugee camp, we all have this visual of very difficult, uh, not very sanitary, closed uh, space uh, places where people are all jammed together out of necessity to survive. So that's very true. You know, these tents are side by side. There's certain amounts of uh, meters in between. So when you bring a lot of people from different places into a land that used to be a potato land, farming land, and you have cloth tents, there's open sewage, there is lack of sanitation, there's a shortage of water. It is a perfect place for health problems to happen. Um, there are a lot of NGOs, and UNHCR, who are always doing great job helping refugees in this camp, in other camps, refugee camps around the world. But it is something that almost by definition of being a refugee camp, it's impossible to have perfect, healthy sanitation. So there are a lot of health problems. I have, I have been sick in the refugee camp myself because I lived there for so long on and off uh, with the refugees to be able to capture their reality. And, you know, I've had everything from intestinal problems to, to skin diseases. And, uh, you know, I've fallen in with my camera in a, open sewage. You can imagine that it's very dangerous for young kids, for uh, old people, as much as people try. Uh, NGOs bring in uh, fresh water. There's uh, some schools set up for kids. Everyone's trying to help, but it's unavoidable to have health problems. But health issues beside, there are so, there is so much mental challenges, uh, emotional and mental difficulties to deal with such traumas that I witnessed it in the years that I spent in the refugee camps. It is very difficult to live through a traumatic war experience and then having to escape your house and live in a tent where you don't know when it's going to end. There is no end date. It's not like six months from now, we're packing and going home. The uncertainty is scary. The hopelessness is scary. And a lot of people are suffering from mental health issues. I grew up in Lebanon during the Lebanese civil war. As a child, I have witnessed so much violence that even now as an adult, I am re-traumatized and I suffer from PTSD. And having spent those years in the camp, witnessing and absorbing the trauma of all these people that I, I, I care for, Maria, Maria's nieces, other people that didn't end up in the film because it was impossible to make to cover every single person's story that I filmed. It wasn't going to be a coherent film. And so lots of other characters that I cared for and absorbed their sadness, their trauma, uh, are staying with me. And so I, 
I'm using myself as an example of a person who has lived through war and uh, traumas. And now years later, I'm still being re-traumatized. And I'm, I know that these people are going to not only suffer it now as they're doing, but in the future, it's going to come back. This is something that doesn't go away. So I'm very concerned about the mental health of all the refugees. Uh, my father grew up in a refugee camp in Lebanon, in Karantina refugee camp. My mother comes from Armenian genocide survivors in 1915 uh, with the Ottoman Turks when uh, Armenians were uh, massacred. So his fa her family, my father's family, we have so much of this internet intergenerational trauma that we're dealing with. And I could see the signs of all of that in the young children, the teenagers, the older people that are still there. And one of our characters in the film suffers from depression and she wasn't eating. And there are other people who were, you know, who had cancer. They were having cancer treatments and it was just so scary to have cancer already imagine having in a refugee camp we would have very limited access to treatments bringing it back to the film maria's father abu jamil who is the muslim syrian man who who became very good friends with musa the lebanese christian man and their friendship is really special and unique and so we celebrate that in the film and these men have such amazing connection i don't want to give too much away from the film but he had a heart attack which he survived but even though in Lebanon he could have got uh, help, they couldn't afford it as refugees. So even in the war, Abu Jamil had to be taken from Lebanon by car all the way to Syria to be able to be treated as a Syrian citizen in Syria. And that's happened right around the time ISIS took over Raqqa. And Abu Jamil got stuck in Raqqa for several years. He wasn't able to come back to Lebanon. So what we take for granted in the West that, oh, you know, you're sick, you go to the doctor, you're taken care of. Over there, it is so much more complicated just to get help. Again, I want to be grateful for all the NGOs and the UNHCR is doing. I'm just saying it is really difficult. And I have seen a lot of organizations coming to give vaccination to the children, to give help, medicine, and it's all great. But I haven't really seen anywhere in the refugee camps where there is a tent set up with psychologists or psychiatrists taking care of the mental health of the refugees. Obviously, that's a, a huge thing, but I haven't seen any of that. And your film, Noura, is actually a call for, you know, action that such uh, mental health problems are, are a priority as well, and they shouldn't be ignored um, as demonstrated by the, um, you know, the vignettes, the, the stories that you brought in the film. I'd like, again, you gave a person, a human face to the stories of what compels refugees to, to try and escape this state of deprivation, statelessness, to, to immigrate to Europe or America, for example. And you have covered or presented that aspect of an attempt of survival elsewhere. So tell us a bit about those stories. Most of the refugees in, in the initial stages, the first, second, one, two, three years, 
they were kind of had were hopeful that maybe this will end and then they get to go to back to Syria and uh, restart their lives. But I think when we start getting to 2014, 2015, people were desperate. They were terrified and everyone was trying to get out of Syria, out of the Middle East, into Europe, into Americas. And so sponsorships to other countries, finding any way to escape. Uh, out of there. And it's sad that in 2015, the world's conscience all of a sudden woke up when they saw that child's body on the shores in Turkey. That's when the world started paying attention as to what was happening to the refugees. And I'm being there always, people were bombarding me questions Everybody would come and ask me, can you help me? Can you give me some money? Can can you give me $5,000? I need to get with my kids to um, Cyprus. We need to run away. Now, I'm talking about hundreds of people, people that I care for and I've got to spend time with. They're always asking for advice. How can they get on the UNHCR list? In fact, today, year 2023, as I'm speaking to you now, I receive text messages. I'm in communication with Maria and Maria's family all the time. I I mean, I'm I know what's going on in the camp. I'm always with them. I still get texts on WhatsApp and Viber from some refugee from another camp who had heard about me and they asked me how I can help them come to Canada. People are desperate to get out, and that desperation makes them feel very lonely that nobody cares about them. And in effect, in a way, it's true because we tend as countries, as news organizations, as public, we talk about issues that happen in the world. We cover it. Uh, In media, we talk about it like we did with the Syrian refugees starting in 2015 with the the body of the child. And then we covered a lot of refugee issues with Syria. And then we put that on the back burner. Sadly, Ukrainian war started and we dealt with the Ukrainian refugees. And lately, we haven't been hearing anything about Ukrainian refugees as much as we did. And we keep moving on. So... In that sense, the people of Syria feel that they are being forgotten. I would like to talk a little bit about the people of Lebanon as well, who are paying the consequences of this violence. Lebanon is a small country, Christian Lebanese country, that uh, had four to five million population. And all of a sudden, two million Syrian refugees escaped and the balance came to Lebanon and the balance of the country disturbed. So Lebanon right now is in a horrible economic state, collapsed economy, their banking system is collapsed, the people of Lebanon, majority of them are starving, there's no health care, there's no government, the government is corrupt, every single one of them, they have stolen the money, everyone's money, including my family's, and they've taken them to Swiss banks. So the people of Lebanon are suffering, and the people of Syria, the refugees are suffering, it's it's really a chaos, and I haven't heard anyone in the media talk about what's going on in Lebanon. Very rarely we hear about it. I think this is what the people are feeling, and they've kind of given up that things going to go back. Hmm. Just like Maria says, 
in the film, I'm afraid that we're going to be like the Palestinians lingering in refugee camps for 60 years. Mm. That's their fear. And that's why their only dream is to win the most amazing lottery in the world, which is your name is called up by UNHCR and you get to travel to Australia, to Canada and get out of there. Which highlights uh, this complicated situation for Syrian and, for Syrians and Lebanese people, the, the plight and the impact of this humanitarian crisis. Um, I would like you to talk about the reception of the film, maybe amongst the the film world and industry, but then again, link it into how your film can be used for advocacy, for you know, maintaining the pressure that, lest we forget, this is an ongoing humanitarian crisis. So tell us about the critical reception and the future of your film. How do you see it being a tool for both Syrian and uh, refugees and Lebanese people? I'm very happy and grateful for the success of Batata in the film industry and festivals. So Batata had its world premiere at FIPADAC in January of 2022. Since then, it has been around the world in festivals. It has been to Dock Edge in New Zealand, South Africa. It has been to Greece, Munich. Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't remember all the festivals. We have a long list of festivals. But some of the awards that Batata won are Human Rights Awards at um, the Durban Film Festival. A human Rights Award at Carthage Film Festival. We won the Best International Documentary Award at Carthage Film Festival, which is an academy qualifying award, which is huge. So Batata is actually qualified for 2024 um, Academy to enter uh, the awards. Uh, we won top 10 at Hot Dogs Film Festival, which is a documentary festival, one of the largest in the world, which happens here in Toronto. And for an audience to vote for a document, a, a film about refugees to be in the top 10, it's huge. We were nominated for three Canadian Academy Awards um, that happened two days ago. We went to the awards ceremony and um, sadly, we didn't win any of the nominations, but we got a really great consolation award, which was a nomination for a prestigious Peabody. Uh, for all those who don't know Peabody Awards, it basically represents stories that matter uh, as media narratives that defend public interest, encourage empathy, and teach us to expand our understanding of the world today. So I'm very honored that we got that nomination. So Barata has done really well and played in so many festivals. People had contacted me via email or social media saying the impact this film had had on them as human beings watching and understanding. But sadly, I cannot share with you a broadcaster or uh, any kind of digital media where I can say, go here and see the film. Unfortunately, mm. we haven't had any of the platforms, uh, global, national, any type of platforms support the film and say, yes, we want to show it. I don't understand that, but it's very sad that I can't tell you where you can go see the film. But I really hope that somehow that would change and that people will get to see the film and understand and have a firsthand experience of, of what it feels like to be a refugee.
Thanks, Nora, for that enlightening narrative and, and, and the background story and how you felt about, you know, and how you lobbied for this and, and you invested your uh, time and effort and all of your resources as a human being and as a documentary filmmaker in telling those important stories that are, as you said, are largely forgotten. We would like this uh, podcast to be uh, used uh, the, or to be launched on the World Refugee Day, which uh, coincides or which happens on the 20th of June every year, uh, launched by the United Nations to honor refugees around the globe and to build empathy and understanding for their plight and to recognize their resilience in rebuilding their lives, but with the support of the relevant uh, organizations, you know, nationally and internationally. So um, on that note, I would uh, really, uh, you know, like to state that, that Medical Humanities, British Medical Journal are very happy to engage with you and to get your films to be viewed and, and uh, appreciated on those levels on the World Refugee Day, 20 years of June. Thank you very much, Nora. That was a fantastic run through of uh, 10 years, probably more of your lives. By You told us about the background and how you bonded with these stories. So thank you so much. Any final words for audience there and, and organizations, international organizations, why they should embrace this film and use it as an advocacy and, and lobbying tool. Thank you. Thank you, Khalid. I'm very happy that to be able to share this podcast, the story of the making of Patata, the story of all the people and how they're affected with the audiences. It is very sad that we are 13 years since and we need to remember that the refugees are still stuck there. They're still there. Maria and her relatives are still there with no electricity, no water, still living in the tents, pretty much hopeless. So that's an image that we need to remember and not forget about them. And I hope that people support the film and watch it and learn from it and find the humanity in in their heart to be able to be kinder, more loving and more supporting of people. Thank you very much, Nora, and thanks for Patata for opening our eyes and minds and hearts to the harsh realities of the refugee crisis. And thank you to Maria and Musa and their extended you know, social networks and families and all people who appeared on the film and those who did not uh, feature in the film the stories that you told us uh, about this community of of uh, of people but i'd say probably and the community there is hope that things uh, you know with uh, films like batata that their voices can be heard thank you very much nora thank you khalid i would like to say one more thing i'd like to make a public announcement that i have decided to continue filming the lives of maria and the refugees until they return to syria Although it's going to be very difficult to dedicate another decade or even more into the future, I think it will be a unique opportunity to conduct a longitudinal study on the impact of displacement on the lives of people. For this reason, I have set up a GoFundMe campaign uh, and I would really appreciate help uh, from audiences and people around the world for this very important work. Please search uh, for my name and GoFundMe. My name is spelled 
Nura, N-O-U-R-A, Kevorkian, K-E-V as Victor, O-R-K-I-A-N. You'd be able to find the campaign. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nora, for sharing with us that uh, those plans for ongoing and continuation of your connections and support for the uh, for the refugee camps in 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 Lebanon and their uh, residents. Again, I would say that medical humanities, you know, our platform and this podcast is a call for all uh, relevant, uh, you know, uh, audience to to embrace your call and to listen to your call and offer support. Thank you again for sharing with us this story of their lives, but your life as well. Thank you very much. We're honored. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore BMJ.